Well, good evening, everybody. It's uh, seven o'clock where I am in Burgundy, six o'clock in the UK, and uh, who knows what time wherever else you are in the world. So this evening, we're going to have a little chat about the 2022 vintage, which is now more or less finished. I even tasted my first wine uh, out of the fermenting tank at the Auspice de Bone yesterday. And we'll take a look at a few other uh, interesting questions, what's going on at the moment. If at any point you'd like to ask a question, uh, something you'd like me to respond to, then use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Equally, do please uh, use the chat facility, um, which enables you to uh, bond with other people who are uh, listening in, watching. Uh, say where you come from, what you've got to drink. At the moment, I'm just drinking water, but that may change. And uh, just remember to um, make sure your messages are aimed at everyone rather than just to the hosts or the panelists. Great. So uh, it's <clears throat> the weather's changed here in Burgundy. It's very autumnal now, distinctly cold. Started having fires here in the evening, um, but it's beautifully sunny, north wind, and uh, the heat of the summer, which of course we had in Burgundy, like everywhere else, seems a, a distant memory. We still very badly need rain, however. So I thought I would start by just running roughly briefly through the 2022 growing season and then talk about what we might expect from the wines, uh, even though obviously nothing is going to come onto the market for uh, at least another year. After that, I will say a few words about 2021 because we're about to start the awesome tasting season. I haven't tasted a huge amount, but just a few things. I've got a few ideas of what to expect. Then we can take a look at the various talking points in the region, things like where we are with climate change, um, what's happening to Burgundy in the marketplace, um, developments uh, within the website, and uh, maybe if there's time, a few suggestions of what might be drinking well over the next few months. So I see we've got a great uh, international audience, which is terrific, from New Orleans, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Northern Ireland. Um, all that, yeah, lots. Uh, so keep them coming. And uh, and also from others here in Burgundy uh, listening in. So 2022, um, as always, we don't know what to expect. As always, we have in our minds recent history. So leaving aside 2021, we've clearly got into a pattern of years which are typically hot and dry and likely to make powerful and even quite high octane wines. There's also been the risk of frost at the beginning of the season, which we had very badly in 2016 and 2021 and just missed in 17 and 18. Some regions got it in 19, 20 was all right. Uh, and then in 2022, again, actually, we came very close to it. Temperatures went below freezing after the buds had begun to break. So certainly April the 4th and April the 10th, depending on exactly where you were, possibly a couple of other days, did get below freezing, minus 2, minus 3, minus 4. But nothing like as bad as in 2021, nor for as long, and nor were the vines as advanced. So except in Chablis, uh, there was no actual real damage anywhere or minimal. In Chablis, they thought it was bad to begin with. Some people, when I went up there in May, were talking about having lost half the crop again. But in the end, there was a second generation of grapes, um, of buds leading to grapes, which hadn't happened in 21, but did happen in 2022. 
And so even those people who thought they'd suffered seem to have come through quite well. One thing which people are doing now to minimize the frost damage is that they are trying to prune later. Obviously, you can't prune everything right at the end, but they prune in two times, as they would say, which is to say they do a rough pruning earlier in the season and clear the debris away, but leave um, the main shoot that they're going to use much longer. And then they just come back uh, late on in March and tidy that up and cut that down to the length they want. And that seems to retard the uh, growth and the bud break, which means that you are less at risk from frost if it happens. There are possibly some other minor inconveniences plus the extra time taken, uh, but lots of people have decided to do that this, this time. Um, so we got through the frost period. There'd been just about enough rain in the winter. There was a certain amount of rain in the spring. Actually, the first time for a number of years, we began to see back again the westerly airflow, which would be the, the norm, prevailing wind from the southwest, um, which gave a bit more humidity, even though it didn't rain a great deal. Um, flowering was pretty early, um, a little bit towards the end of March, and uh, March, sorry, that must have been very early, towards the end of May, and uh, certainly the first week of June, in good conditions, really big crop had set because every year that succeeds uh, a frost year, the vine wants to uh, recover ground and it always tends to set a big crop. So like in 82 after 81, 92, again in 2022. Um, <clears throat> after that, the weather conditions rather changed and it became basically hot and dry, hot during the day, still cool nights, which were important, kept things fresh, kept, uh, kept it bearable to live here, uh, and also probably have had a beneficial uh, influence on the development of the grapes. The one exception to the hot and dry was uh, a week towards the end of June, um, when suddenly there were a number of storms, some of them really violent. Um, pretty much a whole month's rainfall fell in an hour in uh, chevrolet Chambertin. Um, Cote de Nuit was more hit than the Cote de Beaune, but it happened a little bit everywhere in Burgundy. And unless it was really torrential and you've got your cellar flooded or in one or two places, a little bit of hail with it. Apart from that, uh, it was enormously beneficial to have all that rain at the end of June because we had maybe one shower in the whole of July and nothing much in August until uh, towards the end of the month as the harvest was getting underway. So it felt, from a human point of view, almost unpleasantly dry. It didn't get too hot. We didn't get the same um, real heat spikes that actually uh, you had in the UK, and certainly the southwest of France and Bordeaux had them. So we didn't really get above 40. Um, there were just two very hot days, 18th and 19th of July, and again, 3rd and 4th of August, and again, just before the harvest started. But basically, the heat spikes were nothing like as high as 2003, 2018, 19 or 20. Um, so things were more even. Hot days and cool nights, basically beneficial, but those are good conditions for uh, oidium to um, uh, attack the grapes. Uh, but because it was dry all the time, it was very easy to spray and it was easy to control any disease pressure. So... You just needed to make sure your grapes didn't get burnt and more people are being sensible nowadays and not deleafing as vigorously as they did before. Personally, I'm not sure I would deleaf at all. 
and uh, people are playing around with slightly different forms of canopy management, which we might touch on a bit later. Um, so I had originally thought that when the growers were talking about harvesting from maybe the 20th, between 20th and 25th August as the start date, I thought the same thing would happen as in 2020 and the season would just get earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, and maybe people would start around the 15th, but actually that didn't happen. Um, the ripening process did slow down with the um, drought conditions of late July and August. And uh, the veraison, when the grapes change colour, happened a little bit later. And uh, in the end, people were pushing back and pushing back and pushing back. And so a typical start date for the Côte de Bayonne would have been around about the 28th, 29th of August. Um, in the Maconnais, a little bit earlier, maybe the 25th. Cotonou and Chablis followed on very quickly. A lot of people started around the 1st of September. As always, there are lots of different dates. Uh, depends on how you're on your vineyards, depends on what style of wine you want to make. As you may know, I am more in the camp of favouring a slightly earlier picking without being excessive, rather than hanging on till absolutely everything is, is right. Um, but actually, this vintage, different to 2018, 19, and 20, in this vintage, the window of possible picking dates was a lot wider and doesn't matter as much as those other years. And it also meant for a more relaxed harvest, because once you'd started, you could actually wait for each plot to ripen, make your decisions, and not hurry too much. So uh, the Ospice de Bone, they picked their Puy on the 25th of August. They picked their Saramain on the 16th of September. And that uh, period of 22 days is probably the longest harvest that they've had um, in the last 20 years, simply because it was possible to wait uh, and the grapes could benefit from that. Um, size of crop, big, in both colours, which is something we haven't seen since probably 1999. Um, and in fact, there was a press conference today for the BIVB, the local sort of... Uh, uh, syndicate organization and uh, um, their comment was 2022 it's it's reminiscent of 1959 but they, they like to put a very good uh, spin on things and of course we don't know at all yet how good the wines can be but we do know there's plenty of them uh, the serious guys will not have made too much but everybody will have made more than they originally set out to make so I talked to Michel Mallard, who is the uh, chap in charge of production at Domaine Eugenie in um, von Romanet, and he said, we uh, sort of debudded as we usually do, removed any second, second buds, um, which not everybody would have done after the frost last year. We did two green harvests in the vineyards, and we still ended up with 40 hectolitres a hectare. So goodness knows what the good old boys up the hill uh, would have done. And I have heard a few alarming tales of really ludicrous um, yields, but that might affect some of the um, sort of uh, big distribution uh, wines, but it's not going to affect the um, the good estates and the top negotiants, uh, who will have been a lot more careful. Um, a few vineyards may have got a bit dried out and had lower yields, young vines and arid soils, but in general, um, we're going to expect red wines to be 40 to 50 hectolitres a hectare, and the whites will be 50 and upwards, and possibly quite a bit upwards. And we don't yet know the results of discussions, but a few villages have applied to have a uh, 
higher permissible yield this year. But the whites will not be as big in yield as 2018 was. Um, the reds will be maybe similar to probably a bit less than 2017, but they're going to be much uh, richer wines, much more uh, dry matter, as they call it, um, uh, dry extract, uh, and a higher dimension of long-term quality than 2017. Um, and we know from 17, and those wines are beautiful at the moment, uh, we know that uh, as long as the grapes ripen, you can permit a slightly bigger yield than we used to think. Um, so I have, um, as I say, I've been touring around the wineries uh, during the harvest, a little bit after the harvest. The grapes look so healthy. You had to do a little bit of sorting to remove any dried grapes. There wasn't really any oidium. There wasn't any mildew. Maybe your whites right at the end of the season began to show a little bit of rot. I've heard that up in Chablis and maybe in the oak coat, but but not much, and you can get rid of it. Uh, so broadly speaking, there's everything to like. Whether it's going to be good or exceptionally good, uh, we don't know yet. Uh, much too early. This time next year, I'll probably have the beginning of an inkling, uh, but not much before then. But the reaction of the producers varies from happy to ecstatic. I hear more ecstatic noises coming out of the Cote de Bone and more it's definitely very good but we don't know more than that from the Cote de Nuit. Um, certainly I talked to one of my negotiation friends Benjamin LaRue um, earlier today and he said these reds are just going to be absolutely sensational. Uh, I've just been pressing off uh, a pomar from a crew that I've made and uh, this smells to me like the best pomar I've ever made and remember of course he worked at the um, Domaine du Comte Armand, he made the Clodis Epineau wine from 1999 through to 2013, and he made some pretty fine wines in that period. So it's 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 very encouraging, but uh, maybe try and avoid uh, too much hyperbole, leave that for, um, for later on when we can actually taste the wines and begin to form a proper opinion. Uh, Chablis is very happy, uh, Maconnet, I hear it's a little bit more variable. Some areas, uh, the yields were a bit down, Others, they were encouraging as elsewhere. Um, but all parts of Burgundy will have made at least good wine. So um, that's uh, my thinking so far. Just having a little check. Uh, you're all all leaving messages. Thank you again on the, on the chat. Please continue to do so. Um, great. And no questions as yet. So if anyone does want to ask anything about uh, 2022, um, please do so now before we move on to other subjects. Uh, what I would say is that the vines stayed healthily green through the harvest and they're still green now. That green is beginning to become more of a yellowy green, but there are some vintages where pretty much as soon as the grapes are picked, uh, the leaves fall off and, uh, and you get into a fully autumn uh, scene. But I think we're gonna have some lovely colors uh, over the next two, three weeks uh, through into the beginning of October. Um, uh, they're still picking a little bit up in the oak coat, but uh, but not much else. Grand. So that's the uh, um, early view on 2022. Uh, but they're definitely uh, grinning from ear to ear, like cats with two tails, uh, because it's so comforting to have made a proper yield uh, this year, uh, as well as 
theoretically some very nice wines. Um, I don't know where at this point, I mean, it's much too early, but the comparison that has come to my mind, preliminary comparison, is 1999, which again was a big crop in both colors, was very good in both colors, and possibly um, favored Cote de Bone very slightly over Cote de Nuit. So that's just a thought, but I mean, I, uh, I wouldn't want to be held to that um, at this early stage. Right. Um, I have someone's just asked about the volume, but I think I have answered that. It's uh, it's a big crop in both colours. Uh, exact numbers, too early to say yet. Okay. Um, Paul has just asked a question. We saw lots of unpicked grapes here in Merceau, especially in volnay Sontenot. Why was this? They seemed right. Unless, uh, I don't know exact date that you saw that, uh, there are always one or two deliberately late pickers um, and it's possible that somebody hasn't picked but the other thing you will see is that uh, you might see towards the top of the vines uh, quite a few grapes and you look at them and you think why hasn't somebody picked here um, if you have uh, there are things you can do in the vineyards to make sure you don't get these secondary crops um, but particularly if you do lots of uh, hedging uh um trimming of the vines then you often get secondary shoots forming within the canopy and they have a second generation of grapes which is not ripe at the time of the harvest but it might have changed color and those grapes the pickers would be instructed to leave and so some years you can actually go uh, through the vines and when the leaves have fallen off you see quite a few bunches of grapes and you say what's going on here um, certainly, if they were machine harvested, they would have left those. Those grapes would not have been ripened, would not have fallen off. And I remember back in 1999, when it didn't really rain until November, after the end of the harvest, you could go through in October and uh, the very beginning of November and see these grapes. And uh, one or two people actually made some late harvest vines from um, bunches of white grapes, which a month and a half later had ripened. Yes, question from Philip. Um, acidity levels. I, I haven't said much about the structure of 2022s. Um, they're not high, but they're not dangerously low. The analysis actually reads just fine. And the good news is that almost all the acidity is tartaric rather than malic, because the malic disappears later on, whereas the tartaric stays. Now, what we don't know at this stage is whether we're going to get that fresh taste that came out in um, 18, 19 and 20, unexpectedly. Um, I didn't talk either about sugar levels, but most people are going to be around about 13% going up 13 and a half for the Premier Cruise, maybe 12 and a half for some of the uh, lesser villages. Um, and that's really healthy. I mean, that's that's what we used to see with a bit of help from <laughs> additional sugar. If we can get that naturally, I think that's just perfect. I've hardly come across anyone who's brought in any wines at 14 or more. Um, right. Um, the Paul has answered about the remaining grapes the past few days. 20 to 40 rows, it is possible that somebody, for whatever reason, has decided to pick much later. Um, there are people for whom that is an absolute mantra. Um, so so uh, there'll be plenty of tannins in the red, uh, reds, um, but they won't be ugly because they'll be ripe. And um, all that that means is you've got to be careful in the vinification not to extract too much. So as is typical these days, there is 
uh, a lot less um, punching down, which is a little bit more vigorous, a bit more pumping over. And something that I know they're doing at the OSPEs this year, as they did in 2020, and I hear it from a few other people as well, is they limit the temperature in the fermenting vats. Because fermentation gives off CO2 and it gives off heat. And typically in the old days, you'd be happy to let uh, your fermenting vats get up to 30, certainly, probably 32, maybe absolute maximum 34. But um, this year, Ludovine, I know, has, has kept hers to uh, tops of 26 degrees. And that stops too much being extracted out of the skins. Um, and also, she's keen to do whatever extraction she does do early on before there is presence of alcohol in the vats. So, um, yep, uh, we are going to have phenolic and uh, aromatic ripeness. Um, physiological ripeness, just, not excessive. Um, and the people are doing different, making different decisions about how much they're going to include in the way of whole clusters this year. Um, certainly, the grapes are ripe enough that you can, but um, they're not immensely ripe physiologically. And the other reason why some people are not going to include much in the way of whole clusters is because basically their vats are full and uh, it takes a lot more space if you've got the stems in there as well. So, um, yeah, um, uh, still, I mean, I'll, I'll need to go around more and, and get more views on that, uh, but I'm expecting there to be a certain amount of uh, whole cluster fermentation, but not necessarily everybody going overboard for that. Um, the whites, of course, are fermenting now, so it's very hard to get uh, a view on them. What I'm hearing from everybody is that the fermentation is being very easy. There are no stuck fermentations. Um, and that I think the whites will be reasonably muscular, but they shouldn't be heavy and they shouldn't be over-alcoholic. So, um, you know, they might end, they might be quite like 2020, um, but um, wait and see. Really don't want to promise too much at the moment. Right, well, we extended our, our discussion of uh, 2022 a little bit there. Um, and so now I'm going to flip us back to 2021 where some of the lesser wines might have appeared on the market, such as there are, because as you remember, the crop was extremely small, um, and uh, others will be offered, the, the grander wines will be offered by producers and then by importers at the end of this year, and uh, in the UK at any rate, particularly in the month of January, when I'm sure the usual tastings, which were um, somewhat damaged by COVID over the last couple of years, uh, should go ahead in January this year. Volumes are really low. I was slightly surprised at the overall figure as given by the BIVB um, in the conference today for 2021, shows a reduction of only about 30% of the entire crop. Uh, certainly talking to a lot of the producers in the Cote de Bone, uh, their losses are more than that. I mean, they would start at 30% and some people would be 50 or even 70% down. But the small domains are, are, are not the vast proportion of wine overall. Um, and it was a really difficult growing season. Um, the frost was tough yeah, and you couldn't resist the frost, even if you used all the methods to resist that you... Uh, had at your disposal, it just got too cold for too long, um, and the buds had uh, had broken out of their little uh, cocoons uh, so early that everybody really did get hit. 
and there was no second generation afterwards because even even those buds uh, suffered. Um, but it was a full growing season, and we were used in 2018, 19, and 20, less than 2022, to have had a shorter growing season insofar that the traditional 100 days that you are supposed to count from flowering to picking uh, was significantly reduced down to about 85 days, 90 days in 2019. Um, and in uh, 2021, you got your full 100 days, even 105 days. Um, the whites that I've tasted so far have mostly been up in Chablis, um, where picking dates was a real juggle because uh just about as ripeness was beginning to happen uh there was a big storm around about the 19th 20th of september uh and rot suddenly began to set in so if you waited to get the full ripeness you might want you were definitely going to get some rot so that reflects a little bit the situation in 2013 but i like the wines more in 2021 um and i'll be doing my report soon on those um and they are at least sound. They are not the longest. Um, they do taste on the whole ripe enough. Uh, they've got a little bit of Chablis nervous energy. Some of them are a bit too soft. Maybe people who picked a little bit late after the rain and got some dilution in the wines. Um, but they're not sort of hard and green as I might have expected in a year in which ripeness wasn't guaranteed. But I suppose the thing we have to remember is even if the um, sort of sugar figures and the other forms of analysis uh, in 2021 have nothing in common with 2015, 18, 19, 20, 22, uh, they are sort of a throwback to the middle 1990s uh, and would not look have looked out of place then. Um, pretty much everybody would have had to chaptalize a bit. I do know a couple of producers who said, look, there may only have been 11.8, 12, 12.2 in alcohol, but I decided not to chaptalize. I'm happy to leave them exactly as they are. Uh, and I actually rather admire that uh, decision. And uh, when I come to uh, uh, taste wines like that, it'll be very interesting to see what's happening. Um, the difference in secondary buds, Sid's ask a question between 2022 and 21. Um, I think um if it's only secondary buds uh they probably won't be as good and you also need to balance getting the ripeness correct in 2016 um you could really taste a first generation and a second generation in the same wine i'm not sure we'll have that in 2022 because i get the impression that everything would have come together and ripened pretty well um and in fact, Paul's also said we saw much more mechanical harvesting this year. Is this a trend? Or were the problems getting pickers? It's not a deliberate trend. People don't want to do it, but there were problems getting pickers. And some of the um, people who they now use, the uh, the gangs and the gang masters have not been already in 2021. They didn't deliver. And in 2022, people are a little bit more afraid of that. It may have been also a chance of where you were looking, when you were looking. Uh, when I came round, I didn't see a lot more, but um, there probably were a few more. So, and uh, we don't know how many lots will be for the Ospice auction this year. It's too early. Um, but uh, we're, I will find an opportunity to talk about that on a later occasion. So, uh, just continuing then with 2021, that's a look at the whites. 
Um, and, um, you know, I, I think they're going to be nice wines. I think they will be good to drink reasonably young. I think we won't get any mythical great wines and they won't be the sort of wines that you'll want to put down in your cellar for 10, 12, 15 years. Um, whether or not, well, we'll talk about uh, the market uh, shortly, uh, but how easily they will sell, I don't know, but there won't be that many of them. So I expect a lot of people will want to maintain their positions with importers um, for the wines, which are really hard to get. Um, and I don't think there will be horrible, disgraceful wines out there either. So um, move to the reds. Uh, I think they're more difficult, mostly in the Cote de Bone. I think the frost hit harder and worse there. The yields seem to be less. And when you've made very little wine, it's that much harder. Uh, there are exceptions to the rule. Um, I own a, a co-own, have a share in a little vineyard of Bone Petrizo Premier Cru, um, which I never write about, never give tasting notes on, because obviously there'd be a conflict of interest there between my sort of critic hat and owning that. Um, but our vigneron, uh, Jean-Yves, uh, he decided to prune very, very late indeed. So he hadn't even finished pruning when the frost came through. And as a result, uh, we didn't suffer from the frost. And 2021 was the biggest crop we've actually made. Uh, we've got 10 barrels from that vineyard, which is allowed to make 10 or even 12. But 10 is the maximum we'd ever want to make. Previous best was nine. And in some years, we'd only made two or three barrels. And in 2016, after the frost, we only made half a barrel. But in our half hectare, we got 10 barrels um, in uh, 2021. But uh, a couple of other people reported something similar if they had pruned very, very late indeed. But that's not typical. Um, in the Cote de Nuit, yields were better. A few people have told me that they made, broadly speaking, as much wine in 21 as 20. Uh, one chap, and he's one of the new sort of trendy young growers, um, who uh, is making a, a bit of a name for himself called um, uh, Pierre-Olivier Garcia. Uh, he's actually made his biggest crop ever in 21 across everything he's made. Uh, again, he um, pruned very late. Uh, and uh, the, I've, those are wines I've tasted the whole cellar, and I was really impressed with them. So I think we're going to see some 2021 reds, which are pretty good. I don't know that we'll get much in the way of the sort of fast five-star really top rating but um uh, there's there's a chance there's going to be some interesting stuff there but um uh too early for me to give you a serious view but again i'll, I'll talk about that at um in december probably when i've come to the end of my awesome tastings through october and november but they're going to be much shorter tastings this year because uh, some of the all the growers so far I've asked have said, yeah, sure, you can come by. We will put out samples for you to taste, but there are going to be many fewer wines to taste because either we've had to blend together various uh, normally separate cuvées to make one wine, or I have made it, but I've made so little of this wine that I'm just not going to show up for tasting. So we'll see. Um, what will pricing be like? Well, by the time people set their prices for 2020, they already knew how small a crop they got in 21. So the majority of people, the sensible option, was to set a price in 20 that you could keep um, flat in 21. And that, I think, was the intention of most people. Since then, there have been so many uh, price rises in sort of non-grape material, 
whether it's in cartons, uh, transport, uh, obviously electricity costs, which uh, everybody in the UK is uh, very anxious about at the moment. Um, all sorts of things just about running your winery have increased really significantly. Um, and its recruitment of staff is very difficult. And so people have had to pay more for that. So I'm just getting a feeling that a few people might push their price up slightly in 2021. Um, but if I get the opportunity to, I will recommend that they don't and that they hold off. And um, knowing they've got a big crop in 2022, they'll get plenty of reward then. So let's hope they go that way. Uh, but again, mostly they will do their pricing for 2021. They will send through to their importers typically in November. Um, but everybody does it all slightly differently. So um, what else to say about uh, 21? I think that is most of it. Um, what is true is that the supply chain has no wine in stock anywhere. You've all been drinking more at home uh, since the first lockdown and uh, continuing those habits. Um, there has been uh, enormously higher proportion of wine has left the cellars in Burgundy over the last year um, as a proportion of the total stock available. Um, so in some appellations, particularly generic ones, there is only three or four months stock left available. And uh, that's all going to disappear between uh, and now and Christmas. And then there will be a bit of a gap before 2022s are ready. Um, so uh, whether you're an importer, retailer, whatever, you're probably very short of Burgundy at the moment. And there's no, there's not a lot of backstock of previous vintages uh, to draw on. So let's hope that 2023 is also a big crop and that we replenish the supply levels and two really big crops in a row if it were to happen ought to bring prices down i don't promise it will because it didn't in 2017 and 18 when they were both big crops okay um bottling dates 2021 mark's asked um i don't think anybody is changing their normal habits so some bottle just before the new harvest and will have done so others it's at some point that sort of um end of the year or into the spring. I haven't heard anybody saying they want to be um, significantly earlier for 21. I, don't, I certainly don't think they will be later, uh, but I think people are going to use their standard base on this. Good. If I can uh, work my way down this glass of water, I might even get a glass of wine before we're finished. The other topics I wanted just to uh, catch up on are um, a little bit what's happening in response to climate change, a little bit more on um, Burgundy in the marketplace. Um, we've obviously inevitably touched on that a little bit when talking about pricing um, and a few other developments to come. So climate change, I mean, we've all pretty much accepted that it's, it's here. Um, I sometimes fear that we think that what we're seeing now is the worst that we will get. I got pretty um, uncomfortable over the last year or so when I saw that in these last few hot years, quite how much damage has been done to the woodlands around us, in addition to the vineyards. Um, I can report a little bit better uh, up in the woods. Fewer trees died this year than in 2018, 1920. 
I think what is happening is that certain sorts of trees are dying or at least having their lives shortened. And what will replace them will be increasingly trees that are more comfortable in hotter and drier conditions. And so we'll have a change in the makeup, but we're not going to lose our woods completely. And uh, I know one of my jobs in the summer, and I've just finished doing it, is trimming all the hedges around the fields where um, my wife keeps her horses. And so uh, in return for the owner, I, I trim the hedges. And it's very interesting to see how few um, and how insubstantial the leaves are that the hedges have pulled out, pushed out. They're mostly still healthy, but they're not sort of opulent and, and generous. And a few are showing signs of, of dying down, but no particular uh, particular type that's uh, dying more than another. So I'm still nervous, but I'm I'm beginning to get a second wind and thinking that uh, we'll rally round and uh, things ought to be all right. Uh, there's still talk about using other grapes in Burgundy, but I hope they don't go down that route, except for allowing Aligothe in with the Chardonnay instead of just as a separate wine. Um, and there's one young chap who's planted a bit of Syrah in what would have been a Bourgogne Rouge vineyard uh, down sort of below the um, the good village wines. Um, and there's talk of allowing various hybrids and uh, and who knows where we will go. Um, so what can be done? Uh, there is talk, some people are keen to allow um, irrigation, which typically has never been allowed in Appalachian Controle regions in France. They have allowed it in certain areas in Bordeaux this year, a special derogation. But from what I've read, only about 15% of the growers involved have actually done it. Um, they've asked a few, sounded out a few growers in Burgundy, and though some want it, others are against it um, for a number of reasons, not least on sustainability grounds, because where's that water going to come from? We don't have a nice mountain range like the Andes from which we could use the, the runoff from the melting snow. Um, it would have to come from existing underground water sources, which are already seriously depleted. Um, plus, if you allow um, irrigation, then you get the good old boys doing too much of it um, too often and uh, trying artificially to bolster their yields without any care for quality. So, um, so let's not. Um, Steve has made the interesting uh, comment that Mark has got some Syrah in Macon. Um, I know he, he also makes some wines down in um, in Cornas, further south, but there are parts of the Macanay where it's permitted as Vin de France, because there are parts of the Macanay which are on granite soil, so why not? Um, but I would not like, I can't see uh, Gamay or Syrah really thriving um, on the limestone soils, Syrah a little bit more, but whatever happens, I cannot see anybody be interesting interested in paying the prices for Grand Cru, the great vineyards of Burgundy, if it's not made out of Pinot Noir. Um, you can, if you have to replant, you can use more suitable to dry conditions rootstocks and clones which ripen later, because of course what people planted in years gone by were early ripening rootstocks and early ripening clones because there was a struggle to get the grapes ripe. So that seemed to make sense. Uh, but now, of course, it's the opposite of what you want. Uh, so that's certainly uh, sort of a long-term choice you can make if you have to replant. And we've had this problem, especially with one rootstock, 161.49C, 
which has been dying off. And I just checked with a few people earlier today and they said, yes, that's gone ahead in 2022. It's at least as bad as other recent vintages. And we're going to have to continue replanting significant blocks of vineyards um, next year, year after, in the, in the next few years. So that really is um, rather an issue um, still going forwards in Burgundy. But it's what you can do within any given growing season that I think uh, is interesting because you can play around with your trellising and your canopy management. So we talked about this before. You might expect people to go lower in their trellising because that's what you tend to find further south in France where areas are hotter. But other people are going higher, uh, have a different uh, leaf to grape ratio, um, maybe a bit more shade. Um, there are a lot of a lot of different um, points to this, but also there are definitely two opposing viewpoints. Some people say with more leaves you'll get more evaporation, um, for example, and also with more leaves you'll get more photosynthesis, and so you risk getting uh, higher sugar levels. Um, what Lalu Bislois and uh, Charles Lachaud of Domaine Arnoux Lachaud would say is that they get proper physiological and phenological ripeness earlier and they can pick early uh, and get beautifully ripe tasting grapes and therefore wine at uh, still at acceptable even quite low alcohol levels so different opinions as ever but even if you don't do that what loads of people are doing is um, hedging a little bit wider so they set the machine on their tractors uh instead of trimming close into the hedge they're still doing the same at the top level but instead of trimming close into the sides they're trimming a little bit further out particularly they find they can also now are sophisticated enough to set their machines so the side which is exposed less to the sun uh the north side if you've got your vines running up and down the hills so they're running from west to east and so that means the sides are south and north uh, so the north side, which is not going to see the direct sun, you could actually hedge a little bit closer or at least no further out than where you're used to. But the side which is south facing, where you need more protection of your grapes in the hot sun, you can hedge much less. So you get a lopsided looking vine, aesthetically, not like a, a little um, sort of suburban garden, as some people like to do with their vineyards, but actually more effective in protecting because sunburn is one of the big issues. You still get a lot of people who insist on deleafing, saying that they need to do it so that the grapes get enough air. Some of them even think the grapes should see the sun and I firmly believe they should not see the sun because it's the leaves that do the photosynthesis. And even without uh, the effect of major sunburn, um, any sun on the skins of Pinot Noir is going to toughen up those skins and give you a slight coarsening effect of the wines. So, um, ah, very interesting question from Charles, which I don't know the answer. Um, evolutionary change, changes in the grapes themselves in response to climate change. Uh, I don't have an answer for you, but I shall go away and think about it and start asking people. Um, Sander asked about the second harvest. Is that interesting for making rosé? Um, typically, when people make rosé, it's because it's a very big crop. Uh, you might have done it in a 2017 in red. Um, and what you're trying to do is 
slightly concentrate your red juice. So you do what they call a saigne or a bleeding, and uh, you leave your um, grape skins in the fermenting vat with the juice overnight or for 24 or maximum 48 hours, and then you run some of the juice off. That gives you a nice bit of rosé to play with, and it means that you have got less juice uh, alongside all the solids in your fermenting vat, so you get a little bit more concentration. Yeah, uh, in, and some people like uh, you know think they've got to market every year because uh, 2020 yields were all right, but they weren't enormous. But some people make a little bit most years, and of course in Marcinet there is a long long term tradition of doing that. What I would say about any Burgundy rosé is don't think of it as a sort of a in the sunshine, uh, early evening aperitif, sasquencher. Um, uh, I think most of the wines are much, much better dr uh, drunk with food. And I think they're much better given at least a full year, if not year and a half of bottle age. So I wouldn't drink um, in the summer of... Um, 2022, I wouldn't have wanted to have been drinking a 2021 rosé. I would have been looking to drink a 2020 or a 19, or if I had Sylvain Bataille's wine uh, on hand, maybe a 2010 or something like that. He makes a rosé, which has got amazing uh, aging potential. So, um, Peter's question about how bio biodynamic producers have fared compared with non, um, well, non bio. In French, you would just, um, uh, you you would differentiate between uh, biodynamic or biodynamie and bio or bio just means organic, whereas in English we would say organic for that and biodynamic. So you might use bio as a shorthand. I'm not sure what you um, uh, were in fact referring to there uh, in 2011, but I think you mean 2021 and 2022. I think in 2020 um, and 2022 uh, the biodynamic producers. Um, have done extremely well in 2020 they often got some of the best yields that doesn't matter in 2022 because everybody got a lot 2021 was definitely difficult and the biodynamic people were possibly struggling more than conventional but it's a conversation i'll have with everybody as i go around uh, in the next two months right um where have we got to um yes so um what is true is that more and more people are certifying as organic. In the smaller domains in the States, it's because uh, they have been effectively organic for a while, but the older generation don't believe in certification. But as the younger generation take over, then they start the certifying process. I'm seeing that in an awful lot of case, cases. Um, the other issue is that the big negotiations have decided that uh, they have been told by their importers that it's really going to matter. And actually, if you um, get uh, an inquiry from the Norwegian state monopoly, and possibly some Canadian ones as well, they will request as part of the uh, the appel d'offre, the, the sort of call for samples, they will uh, put in the terms and conditions that it must be not just organic, but certified organic and specified as so on the label with the relevant logo on the label. So I'm seeing that more and more when um, Merchant Friends show me the the um, re requests for um, offers uh, from those monopolies. Uh, and indeed, the Hospice de Bone has also uh, now started the certifying process for uh, their wines. 
um, which is a big step because that's a huge um, winery. Right. Um, yes, Julia, tender was the word I was uh, uh, struggling for with appel d'offre. Um, thank you. Um, the other thing which I have a sneaking idea, um, as well as people understanding better how to handle the hot, dry vintages, because they've had the experience of 1820. Uh, and I think it was true um, in 2022 that people have become a little bit more astute. I have a sneaking feeling that the vines are learning as well. They're saying, okay, we've well, got to get used to this now. This is happening regularly. And so they're changing their uh, programs, if you like, uh, of how they they metamorphose everything um, to to bring the grapes to the right sort of maturity. Am I being fanciful? I don't know. Possibly, I'm not sure how you can measure it for a certainty, but I do get the impression that uh, they're handling it better, uh, and that's important and and encouraging. Um, in vinification, I've already touched on one of the things or two of the things which are happening in the hot dry years. One is, on the whole, people are using more of the whole cluster vinification um, because it uh, reduces alcohol a certain amount. It actually reduces acidity, acidity too, but it enhances the feel of acidity in when you taste the wines. It makes the wines taste fresher. Um, so that's all uh, a good thing. And uh, the other factor is a few people, uh, as Ludovine has been doing, as I um, suggested earlier, are reducing the temperatures. Everybody has got proper cooling equipment these days. It's absolutely essential. Um, and they're cooling down the grapes before they even start the processing. Um, but they can cool down the vats. And as a result, uh, they're able to have lower top temperatures of the fermentation, which is a better way to react to extraction and vinification in the hot dry years. I'm sure we'll have a few more years every so often like 2021. It'll be a throwback, just as occasionally when things tended typically to be underripe. We've got a few really hot years. Um, but um, yeah, uh, I think uh, <coughs> uh, I think they will become rarer. It wasn't that long ago. 2013 we harvested in, in October. Uh, 2008 was a pretty late harvest. 2021 was September, um, stretching into the beginning of October. Um, but the, it's going to be more common to see vintages which begin in August or some in, in around about second week of September. Okay, so those are um, my thoughts on climate change. We have done actually Zooms dedicated to that, so I didn't want to spend too long in it. Um, pricing in Burgundy. Um, well, uh, <laughs> you don't need me to tell me the prices. The, tell you that prices have got very high, and it's very awkward. Uh, two ways of looking at it: there's the price that it leaves the grower, and then there are the secondary market prices, with some people taking a, a speculative position. Definitely, prices have got a lot higher from the growers. That's going to continue to be the case. Um, the stats that came out of the press conference this morning were very interesting. Um, export figures for the first six months this year compared to the first six months last year. For 13 of the top 15 world markets, um, there was a reasonable, reasonably significant decline in the volume exported. And for 13 of the top 15 markets, 
um, there was a significant increase in the revenue, the value of those exports. Um, so the amount goes down and the total um, revenue coming in goes up. And I actually did a calculation that overall of all the markets, the volume was down by 10.6%. And overall, the revenue was up by 12.4% um, uh, of the price per bottle across all the markets. So what that actually means taken together is you've got an increase in the bottle price of 25%. So it's going to vary from one person to another. It might be different from what you have as your generic Bourgogne or your Chablis or your Macon compared to what you have with Brander wines. But overall, 25% increase in price from the region, partly fueled by the demand, but especially fueled by the very short 2021 crop. So um, uh, Neil's asked if that BIVB report is available online. I don't know. You could look at their um, website and, and uh, have a look around. Um, but I doubt if it is on yet at any rate. Um, I can find out for you. Um, then you've got the decision-making by the various importers, who one would hope that most of them are playing the game and uh, uh, sending things on at uh, acceptable margins. You then have the effect of the secondary market prices, which is so much more visible these days because people use sites such as WineSearch or there are others. Uh, and sometimes it's really frightening, like uh, Charles Lachaud's Negociant Aligoté is listed at over £2,000 a bottle uh, and other completely crazy things. Now, if somebody wants to pay a lot of money for a wine that they really want to have, that's their decision. I feel very uncomfortable if there are people in the middle somewhere who are trying to corner the market in a particular producer or a single wine, knowing it's in fairly short supply, and they're just going out there and they're buying everything up, and they're actively pushing up the prices so that they can see the benefit of that when they release them in dribs and drabs later on. So I really hate that. It is so alien to what producers are doing when they make these wines. They want us to drink them and enjoy them. They want to earn a decent living. Sometimes you might criticize some of them to, for what you might perceive as uh, making too good a living. Um, you may criticize one or two of the um, genuine middlemen of uh, maybe making markets high, um, margins higher than you would want. But that's not really where the issue is. The issue is, is if people are actively trying to trade in these wines for their personal benefit and to take them out of drinkability, the drinking range for the rest of us. So I'm sorry when that happens. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> um, and of course, in Burgundy, there is more or less no more real estate out there. You can't increase the size of the vineyards in Chevrochamotin, Merceau, anywhere in the Cote d'Or, really. Um, most of Chablis, maybe there's some pretty Chablis still to come. Most of the Appalachians around the place. Occasionally, someone looks at a map and discovers that's uh, a little bit that was originally authorized. It isn't planted up because it's got a wood on it. And occasionally, a few things are added. There's one possible new addition. It will take a while, but I understand the authorities are very keen for this to happen. And the city of Dijon is keen for this to happen. But there are a load of um, potential vineyard areas 
which were planted up in the 19th century, didn't get replanted after phylloxera. The few bits that were replanted were uh, included in the Bourgogne appellation uh, in 1935, 36. Um, but there's a lot of other areas which are as good, which for whatever reason weren't planted then. Uh, not everything had come back and they were maybe a little bit more difficult to plant, cost more on, on slopes. But they're on the right sort of limestone. They've got the right sort of slope for real quality. And there is a move afoot to create a sub-appellation called Bourgogne-Dijon. And it will be a little bit just north of Dijon, a little bit within the city of Dijon, and a lot of a sort of extension of Marcinet, but a little bit further back from the first slope, a little bit in the hills behind, but not too high up, um, facing due east, on the right sort of limestone, and uh, potentially what could happen, uh, at the moment there are about 100, and, these are very rough figures, 120 hectares of Bourgogne in this area, of which more than half has been built on, uh, and some of the rest isn't planted for whatever reason. So they want to plant up the rest. They want to say, instead of what has been built on, can we have that elsewhere? And then in addition to that, can we have similar areas which um, uh, weren't included at all, uh, but we think would be just as good? And we're digging holes to show you what soil's like, and we've done all sorts of other tests. And I don't think they're trying to be too greedy. And it looks as though this could happen. And we might get an extra couple of hundred hectares of generic Bourgogne with the additional name of Dijon attached um, in the next few years. So that's one area where something additional could happen. I should think there's some more land in the Macanay that could be interesting as well. Um, yes, Steve, that is exactly where Mark Soyar is. Um, it's in around that, that area. Um, Domaine de la Croix is it's called. Um, good. So, um, are any real question then about the marketplace is, is there going to be a crash? Um, people have been asking me, I've been saying, well, probably ever since the price of the 2005. Hey, good work, Paul. On the, If you want to look on the chat, if you aren't looking on the chat, Paul has put the link up there to, uh, I'm not going to dive into it now because uh, I need to uh, multitask <laughs> to do that, keep talking to you. Um, but uh, uh, it, uh, uh, you should be able to get what you want out of that. Great work. So will the market crash? I don't know. I don't really see it. I think there's going to be such excitement for 2022. The 2021s, even if they don't sell all that easily, will um, in due course sell through uh, and they won't be enough to break the marketplace on their own. Briefly, a couple of things to tell you about JMIB. Um, we haven't sent out a formal pre um, press release, but JMIB being uh, the website, just more inside Burgundy. Uh, we have um, been asked by Barry Rellers, who have printed the uh, my book, Inside Burgundy book, first edition and the first two print runs of the second edition. That has been under the imprint of Barry Rellers and Rad Press. They now want to concentrate on their core activities. So they've asked us if we would like to take over complete ownership. And we have done that now. There will be a third print run coming out um, next month, um, and uh, it will still be distributed by our various partners in different markets, but that's now going to be under our ownership. And slowly and steadily, I haven't got a lot up yet, but I uh, keep doing it, and each time I visit a producer, I'm uh, able to um, get a couple more extra bits of information, fine-tune things, update things. 
So we're going to start to put the producer information available uh, on the online site. So as well as seeing any reports which are about a producer's wines, you will also start to get a producer overview, which will carry the information about what holdings they've got, uh, historical background, winemaking background, and anything else I can think of. Because there's no shortage of space online and there is in a paper book. Uh, so that's all upcoming. And we did a little survey, uh, which a gratifying number of you responded to earlier this year, and you all had some ideas of ways we can make the website better. Um, we will be uh, implementing, already have some of those, and um, doing some more as we move through the rest of this year into next year. And if any of you who are listening in today and you aren't subscribers and feel like it, then please do sign up and join us. Cost you £95 a year. Um, my last uh, topic, as we have reached the end of the hour, and uh, I've nearly finished my glass of water, is what would be good to drink this autumn and winter? In whites, sadly, so many people have made whites um, so that they're ready to drink early, and there aren't many vintages which I would um, definitely hold at the moment. I wouldn't be in a hurry to dive into 2020. 2018, I have a different opinion to most other people, and I think this is a vintage which is going to get better and better. I think they are putting on a bit of flesh because it was a big crop and some of them it didn't seem actively dilute, but they weren't concentrated either. They're putting on a bit of flesh and a little bit more character. And I think there's more of an upside if you keep your 2018s back. Um, and equally, some of the plumper richer vintages like 2015, uh, I don't think they have shown all their paces yet. So those two I would keep. I have no objection to drinking 2019 now, but it's in rather a sort of a lush plush uh, style. And it's probably more fun to drink in the summer uh, than the winter. But I don't think it's a problem if you drink 2019s early. 2017s have been maturing a little bit more quickly than I expected, but not in a negative way, not in a premature way, but they're just going through their curve a little bit more quickly. Um, so I think 2017, no hesitation, leap into those and enjoy them um, as much as you want. Steve's just having a 2018 Bourgogne Blanc. Um, somebody asked me which wine am I about to drink? Well, we had a few friends around for dinner last night and I served them two 2009 Chassin Morachet Premier Cruise. And I love uh, 2009 as a white burgundy vintage, as long as people picked early. And I made sure I left just a tiny bit to taste today. So. Going into glass now is 2009 Chassin Morachet Premier Cru Les Cairets um, from Jean Noël Gagnard. And the other wine was Ben Larue's uh, Tete du Clos Chassin Morachet Premier Cru in 2009. So you shall enjoy those. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, 2014s are beginning to become exciting, but there's still a lot more to come. And it depends. If you've got a lot, then start drinking them. If you don't have too much, then apart from the lower levels of appellation, I would be inclined to keep them because I do still think that that is my favorite white wine vintage uh, for a long, long time. I would drink up 2016s and 2013s. Uh, I don't think the uh, 2016s are showing better now than I originally thought they would, but I don't think they've got the right structure for the long term. Um, 2011, 2012, 2011, 2010, and most 2009s, they're all good to drink. 2012s, um, we did a little tasting of them, 10-year-on uh, tasting, which I reported on recently. 
the lower appellations are beginning to show a little bit of age. But once you get into the best appellations, and certainly if you get into Premier Cru and Grand Cru, there's still plenty of reserve. And there's sort of a little electric quality about them. I like 2012 whites, and I think we um, they slightly fell under the radar. 2011s, drink them now because they haven't got more to deliver later on. They're not getting too tired, but they haven't got more to deliver. Um, 2010s, some of them are showing a little bit of extra richness, a bit of botrytis that we barely spotted when they were very young. And it's not too overblown, but um, um, drink those. 2009s, if they were picked a bit late, then they'll already be ugly. If they were picked early, then they're getting into a really good place and have plenty of time uh, forwards. So if you can see that, that was all that was left uh, in the glass from last night. It's still got a little light green tint to it. Even that tiny bit left, I just, I didn't sort of do anything special to it. I just shoved the bottle back in the fridge with the cork in. And it's lovely. Mm, it's actually better tonight than last night because the acidity was a bit missing last night and it's now come out some more. Uh, in reds, 2019s, um, like the whites, um, there's, they're, they're so open and attractive. Um, the good wines, of course, you'll be missing a little bit of the upside that's still to come. Um, but if you've got generics or, or minor villages in 2019, don't hesitate. Really enjoy them. 2018, I think um, the good wines are great. We've just done our Red Berg Fest 2018, and I will get that report up in the next, I hope, by the end of next week. Um, there is some spoilage from the heat, um, some volatility of certain wines, certainly quite a bit of bacterial things going on in a number of um, cellars, and that will be clear in the report. But the people who don't have that, and that is, of course, the majority, these are utterly fabulous, very, very long-term wines. I'm drinking some Bourgogne Rouge and some Saint-Romain reds now, because I have a grow that I particularly like. Um, but in general, anything more than that, I would want to keep and probably keep for a very long time. I have adored drinking 2017s right across the summer. I think it's a perfect summer vintage. Won't matter if you drink them in the winter. But I think there's something about the lightness of touch of 2017 that's better drunk in the summer months. So next summer, again, would be a really good time. I might go for some of the slightly more tannic appellations, the Pomars or Gevres. Uh, I might drink happily this this winter. But it's it's just a vintage to, to fall in love with and enjoy. And no need to keep them to make old bones. 2016, 2015, I haven't really been diving into. I think they're a little bit in a in a um, backward place at the moment. Um, I occasionally pull out of 2016. I think that's a vintage that's going to do better in winter than summer. Um, but but probably not, yes, ideally. 14 and 13 to not first um, rank uh, vintages. 2014's in the Cote de Bone, probably starting. Cote de Nuit, a lot of wines, which I don't really like the balance. It's not universal. I probably drink them more in the summer. The acidity is a little bit awkward at the moment in a lot of 2014's. Um, 2013's, some of those are getting really good. Um, and I might try a few in the autumn. I haven't delved into them deeply, but I just might be tempted to try. Um, 2011, 2007, probably drink most of those up. 2012 has still got reserve, but you can definitely drink them this winter. 
Uh, and there's a little bit of a ruggedness um, in the coat to bone from the the hailstorms, uh, which I think will work better in winter with the sort of food you'd have in winter. Uh, so I will certainly be looking at those during this winter. Then you've got the pairing of 10 and 9, which 10 is everybody's favourite, except me. 9 is my favourite, but mostly for keeping. The 10s are getting so lovely now, but I'm also beginning to see a sign of them no longer having more in reserve. So except at the really Grand Cru end, I wouldn't worry about tackling your 2010s. Um, no, I, I'd be perfectly happy to start um, hoovering my way through uh, cases, should one have cases of them. And 2009, it's case by case. Uh, they're still building most of them. A few people pick the reds too late, but not so many as pick the whites too late. Um, but mostly I'm going to keep them for a long, long time. Uh, I've just had a good experience with a 2004 from a grower who was almost a poster boy for having that real green and mean tasting, which was uh, Christophe Rumier, who normally doesn't put a foot wrong. His 04s were tricky, and I had a bottle of Chambon Musigny Le Croix 04 the other day, and it was just utterly gorgeous. And you still get a tiny trace of the greenness, but the volume of fruit has come up enough to hide it. Um, I don't often drink 2003s, but they're fine to drink now, and they're just not really moving very much. And uh, last night I served two 2002 reds, and they were both completely, utterly magical. They've put on the extra layer of velvet, which they disguised for a long time. They're a little bit crisp and lean to begin with. Um, these were the top end, a very good Moussaint Georges Premier Crew and the Charm Chambertin. And they were both in their youthful prime. No hurry to drink them at all. But if you've got some O2s in your cellar, definitely leap into them. And I'm still definitely holding back my O5s, except at the bottom level. I'm actually, partly because I don't have that many of them, uh, I'm holding back on 99s and 96s. So in reds, over the next few months, 2017, 2013, 2012, 2010, um, 2002s will probably be my go-to vintages. Gosh, right. Uh, Volnay, someone was asking about a Volnay uh, Champon uh, 04. Uh, Volnay was a bit different because it was the one village that got hail, and weirdly, it made the wines taste richer and more concentrated, which goes against the, the normal playbook. Um, I think that could easily be lovely um, in in uh, uh, 04. It could be very nice. Um, Steve's asked me about 15. Did I mention this? Um, yeah, um, it's a vintage which you will really enjoy if you drink it, but it's one which has got a lot more upside still to come. So 15 has got a lot of the power of 2005 plus the sex appeal of 2010. Um, so um, you can drink them, but if you're able to keep them, then I think that's even better. Gosh, well, I have talked to you for an hour and 10 without um, <laughs> scarcely drawing breath. And, uh, uh, and I think I am going to go and uh, enjoy another glass of aperitif white wine and uh, then something with dinner. But uh, I hope that's been enjoyable. Uh, this has been recorded. You will be able to um, catch up with it later, or if your friends missed it, let them know. And uh, I will come back later in the year and give you another update. But uh, thank you so much, all of you coming from your different parts of the world. And um, I look forward to seeing you again in due course. So now, 
Good night from me and from Burgundy, and see you again soon. Bye-bye.